0: Today's reading is on page 1215 in the Bibles by your side. And the passage is from James 4, starting at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely but he gives us more grace that is why scripture says God opposes the proud and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen.
1: Thank you, Alistair. So we are in week uh, seven of nine as we explore uh, the letter that James sent to the the scattered tribes of Israel. James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the church that was persecuted and was relatively poor. And we often, um, people often describe the letter of James as almost like the Proverbs in uh, the Old Testament, but there is a theme, there are many themes going throughout uh, James. At times he has suffered the wrath of great reformers who didn't like what James had to say, thinking that he was uh, preaching a gospel of works, but it's not the case. And as we've gone through this, we've examined a whole bunch of things. Um... And this week we're going to explore something else. And it's great when you go through Scripture. Uh, I'll go back, go back. Don't let them see that. <laughs> no, that's fine, you can see that. That's what I'm going to go. That's fine. Thank you, Andrew. Um, it's great when you go through a, a letter or a book <clears throat> because you're then forced to examine uh, parts of Scripture that if you just pick and choose all over the place, uh, you can easily miss. So we've looked at a whole host of things in, in This morning, I want to start just talking about peace Um, and the word shalom, as you can see up there. Um, Shalom is always positive. Peace, the Hebrew word shalom, is always, always positive, and it means peace be unto you. It doesn't mean go and stay out of trouble. I hope that you don't encounter any trouble as you go into your work this week, I hope you have an easy week and everybody's nice to you. It's it's not like that. It's not that um, idea. Peace basically means a shalom. I hope that you have the highest good coming to you. And those of, well, more, many if not all of us in here know that more often than not, if we want to grow in our faith, if we want to grow, grow in our trust, if we want to grow in our character, that will often be when it's brutally difficult. And you've got a choice. You can either say, well, you can either just get over it somehow, uh, run away from it. That's probably the best way to describe it. Um, But I think God will bring that back to you. Um, Maybe different circumstances, but I I think it will come back because you've not mastered it, because it's not uh, helped you to persevere into developing character. So when we face up to some very tricky situations, and more often than not the relationships, hard that it may be, it's good to face up to it, to discuss it, to embrace it. Because then we'll grow in character, then we'll become more like Jesus. So people tend to think of peace as the absence of of trouble. And if I put these up here, I've put just two, that's fine. The uh, quichette or however you pronounce it, the Indians in Ecuador, <coughs> who is it? Thank you, thank you. Indians of Ecuador define peace as to sit down in one's heart. For them, peace is the opposite of running away um, or running about in, in the midst of anxieties. For them, it means just sit down and sit in peace. Don't run about frenetically. The Chol or the Col Indians of Mexico define peace as a warm heart, or a quiet heart. And although that may sound lovely and, 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 and gooey and marshmallowy and things like that, it still leaves us with this negative idea that peace is the absence of trouble. Because you will never have peace, therefore, because you're always going to have trouble. Hands up if you know someone. Hands up if you know someone. Hands up if you know someone. Rachel, get that horn up in. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. But the very, the very fact that you know someone means there may be trouble ahead. It will. Because that is just the way it seems to be. It since Adam and Eve. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. And, and, but the biblical concept of peace <coughs> doesn't focus on the absence of trouble, of anxiety, or strife. Biblical peace <coughs> is unrelated to circumstances. It's actually a quality of life that is not marred by what happens outside. In fact, it can be enhanced by what happens outside as we mature. As disciples of Jesus. And I know that sounds bonkers. Life is difficult. Therefore you can have shalom. But that is what God promises. That is what Jesus promises. Jesus in John 17. And he prays to the Father for us. Not for the disciples. Don't take them out of the world. That's what Jesus prays. Don't take them out of trouble. But may they be united. As you and I Father are united. And I'm sure somewhere in there may May the peace that we have be with them. So that's the biblical concept of peace. And it isn't some weird idea. It it can come about. Paul, for instance, when he was in the jail uh, in Philippi, he was placed in there. Uh, He was accused. He was incorrectly jailed. And he was chained. And what did he do? He sang songs. What did he do? He praised. The circumstances were difficult, but he remained confident, even though when he looked with his eyes, it was murder. But when he looked with the eyes of faith, or when he remembered who God was and he remembered God's faithfulness, he himself praised and gave thanks to God, possibly even thinking, What is the Lord going to do now? I'd love to be in that position when someone throws their toys out of their pram at me, really gets upset, rather than me shrinking and thinking, what have I done and how can I please them and how can I help them? And I I would love it if I could then go, right, Lord, what have I to do now? How am I going to grow? That seems to be where Paul is at. I know I'm I'm going over the top slightly, but that's the peace that remains with him. And you know what happens? He's released quite dramatically and he brings the jailer and his family to faith and salvation. I wonder if any of us were put in jail, that would be the first thing we'd think about. I wonder who God is going to save in here. So, that idea of peace is important as we look at what James is saying to the the, the scattered tribes, I think it was the 12 tribes they called, the scattered tribes of Israel, God's people, the remnant, the faithful ones, and we are part of that. We, as I've said many times, this should bruise us and cause us to bleed. It's sharp. It's dangerous. May the Scriptures read us rather than us read the Scriptures. And with that, can ask us to pray. We pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable to you, my Redeemer, my Rock. May we have ears to hear, in which a, a heart which is open. Have Your way with us in these next moments. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Take your eyes to verse 18 of of chapter 3 if you've still got your Bibles open there. This is where James leaves off as he goes into this section about submitting ourselves to God and motives and desires and all of that. And he says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness, suggesting That our ultimate ultimate good that can be best described in our lives is peace. That we would be called peacemakers. And then sow a harvest, ten, fifty, a hundredfold of righteousness. And yet the most obvious um, thought in our mind, if we think what our work has been like this week, our relationships have been this week, our challenges have been this week, we can easily come up with stories of strife. So Paul, is, uh, James, sorry, is speaking to us in our circumstances. We have not left them at the door. We bring them to the cross of Jesus. We may want to park them a little bit to focus in on what God is saying to us. Morning, guys. And so... This is the environment that we look at peace, where we acknowledge that strife is all about us. And we know that sin is at the root cause of trouble and strife and arguments and and wars. But what does it look like? I think you may have to... I think the battery may be gone, Andrew. Can you give me the next slide up? Thank you. What does James here say that strife or sin, what does it look like? And we don't have to go far. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. He asks two rhetorical questions here that point to the source of the perpetual conflict that we see, even among Christians, not just in the world, among us and our relationships. And that is fights and quarrels are caused by the desires that battle within you. Speaking to us individually, the sin and strife, the battles, the difficulty more often than not, are caused by the desires that battle within you. When I was thinking about that, and and I could see it clearly at the beginning of this wee passage that James is going to talk about um, uh, submitting to God, I had the image, and it's a TV image, so I've seen it on TV somewhere, of a man, maybe a woman, but a man, and, and they're holding their head, and and the way they've done it in the movie or the, the TV program, they're making the head shake violently. It's like, no. That was the image I had about the battles, the desires that war, that battle against us. Is this image, I'm not saying this is a, a word that is just an, a prophetic word at all. Um, I'm just saying this is what I thought about immediately when I read those verses. And I don't know if you can see that person just shaking violently. And it's so violent that It's distorted. And it is the picture of someone who, when they're still um, among people, it may not look like that. But the reality is that they are violently at war within themselves. That is what causes battles and all of that trouble. It's from desires, this word, uh, non, (laughs) which basically means pleasures. And it's used three times. Three other occasions in the New Testament, and, and I've put them up there, and are always used negatively. These desires that James, the word that he is using here, is always used negatively. That first one, for instance, is the parable of the, the, the sower, where the seed is thrown among the thorns, and the desires and the trouble of the world choke the growth of that seed that, 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 that was planted there, that, that dropped there and tried to germinate, or tried to Sprout uh, roots. It's a negative thing that James has gotten there. And as long as desires, as long as loves, and as long as pleasures say have the upper hand um, in our lives, we are prevented from doing what we're, we're called to do. We're prevented from doing who we're meant to be. And a number of times, and I can remember doing it, and I, I don't apologize for doing it again, when we are, are, are not yoked with Christ as people who are, call themselves born-again Christians, if we are not in relationship daily with Jesus, that easy yoke that he calls us uh, to put on, it's, it's as if we're walking distorted, um, as if we've got spinach uh, curvature of the spine, as if we're limping. Now, that is what we're comfortable walking in like that, but that's not the way we were designed to walk in. We were not designed to walk with these desires battling within us. That's not what Eden was like. Eden, they walked in, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was the, cool, the coolness of the night or something like that. They walked with God. That is how we are meant to walk upright. Not proud, but confident, peaceful, even if there's things about us that are difficult, we are called to walk upright. But the natural or the unnatural or the way in which um, may, may be more comfortable for us to walk as bent over, as crooked. And James basically says, this is a battle. There is an army who will not, within us who will not render obedience to God. There is desires within us that will not render obedience to God. And it's war. It's as, it's as if, imagine if he's saying it battles. Who battles but armies? So there's lots of cartoons where you have little miniature people. In fact, is it not something like the dandy or the beano? Is we guys that live within your head and they determine everything that you do? Anybody know the name of it? Numbskills. Numbskills. Imagine really aggressive, horrible numbskills, and they are—they're—they're they're saying things like, "Kill, destroy. I want that. No, you're not getting it." I know it's a bit stupid, but I'm trying to get horrible in that. It's almost as if that's what James is describing is going in, happening within us. It wasn't before Eden. It was after the fall. And it's the battle will continue to be with us until we have this thing called peace. Peace within us, even though circumstances might be rubbish. Peace among us, which is troublesome at times, but deep peace. So how much time how much energy, how much money, how much interest, how much enthusiasm do we give to the satisfaction of feeding the desires that battle and war within us? You do not have because you do not ask. Is that right? You do not have Because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may be sent what you spend, what you get on your pleasures. It's interesting all the way through here that James doesn't say that desires are naturally wrong. He doesn't say all desires desires are wrong. But he's looking at the redeemed body of Christ. He's looking at those who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's calling them to a new way to submit those desires to God. Sometimes, for for some of us, acknowledging it, first of all, is maybe a massive step. Taking off or peeling off the veneer of, I'm all right, Jack. How many times this morning has someone asked you, how are you doing? And I know that's quite a British thing. How are you? And we're not really interested. Maybe we are. But I wonder how many times even this morning some of us who come in with huge weights on our shoulders said, I'm fine. James invites us to peel off the veneer. Acknowledge that desires are good, but acknowledge that sometimes those desires are battling, are raging. It's advancing our interests, our desires. We want the pleasure. Nothing destroys relationships more than that. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, get out up there, thank you. Can you give me the next wee quote? Give me that next thing as well. Leave that there. If you get bored, you can read uh, Tico Rice. It's a good book. I encourage you to get it. Honest evangelism. Very good. Not only does it affect our relationship together, but it affects our relationships with God. Here, God doesn't answer prayers he doesn't answer prayers as far as James is concerned, is because you're not praying according to the will of God. How do I know what God's will is? There's no magic formula for that. It takes time, it takes obedience, it takes a childlike faith. How many times have we been blessed, me and my wife, in the company of children when they've led us in a way which is according to God's will? numerous times, whether it be in church life or with YWAM, numerous times. So how do we know God's will? He wills for us to be holy as he is holy, as we said last week. And in that submitting and giving over, we tend to pray, therefore, according to God's will and not according to the desires that battle within us. And are you going to make mistakes? Millions of mistakes, but you've got a long time God willing to get it right as you journey with him in the dust of your rabbi daily. We turn God into a divine waiter. He is there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with him on a Sunday. We put out our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate, but God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need and we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver when we act like this we're guilty of spiritual adultery <laughs> big words there big claim when we act like that spiritual adultery we're cheating in god we're using god imagine the the nonsense of that statement we are using god but the truth is, many people today use God's name to do awful things, and we rightly condemn that. How much does that invade our prayer life because of the desires that battle within us? I wonder. It's like the pain of a husband or a wife finding out that their spouse, spouse is having an affair, it's devastating. It's like a bomb that detonates and damages anyone within the blast radius. It's not between the spouses, but it's between families. It's between communities and it's between friends and workplaces. It's devastating. But this is a good picture of what happens with God when we use other people and we use God as a way for us to meet our desires. Devastation, destroying community and cheating God. There is a war, James says, that battles within us. And if there is any consolation here, I'd like to read verses 4 to 6. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with God, friendship with the world, sorry is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world that becomes an enemy of God Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Two things I see right away in regards to God, and it's always good news when we're talking about God. Not my church is great and my small group is brilliant or whatever it may be, but here is who God is and it's on him and his character and his truth I stand. One, God is jealous. He is a jealous God. And jealousy here isn't necessarily a bad thing. God cares enough for us to care. For Tim, for Aidan with his earphones, for Rona. God cares enough about us to care. He is jealous for us. We are His. We have been bought at a price. It has been done. Jesus is the risen one. And His desire is to spread that as far and as wide and as high and as deep as is possible. And God will pursue us to our very last breath with that. A wife who doesn't get jealous and angry when another woman is flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, anguish, these are the appropriate responses to such deep violation. God isn't some abstract abstract entity or impersonal principle. We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings That he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. Again, another good book that I would encourage you to go and get. God does not sit idly back. He is passionately pursuing us. He won't settle for our unfaithfulness. He will get his spotless bride, his perfect bride. Bride of Christ. It will come about. Scripture says it will. And that actually is good news for us. So, not only is God jealous, but God is gracious. And our failure will not be the last word. Grace and all of this will be the last word. It will never be exhausted. Even extending to Saddam Hussein in those moments where we watched him being dragged out of a a hole in the ground, or Gaddafi as he was being dragged out of a a tunnel, I think it was. And I still have an image in my mind um, of Saddam Hussein just before he was about to be hanged. God's grace extends to that man those men who committed incredible atrocities, who pleased themselves no end, God's grace extends even there. And that should be good news for us because we're all in the same boat. He's ready to welcome all of us back in His grace. There are few qualities more honoring to God our creator and more beautiful and attractive in us than humility there's nothing more or very few things more beautiful than humility when we get over ourselves when we stop being the center of the universe when Everything is upside down the way God intended it to be. When we find our life, but we we give it away, we'll lose it only to find that we've received life. That is bonkers to the world. People don't understand that if they don't understand the treasure of finding Jesus and knowing the presence of the Spirit, of knowing that, Even if other people think we're a nightmare, God calls us priests, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, beloved. The way to become great is to become a a servant, and the way to be exalted is to be humbled. And in that, we will become what God is fully intended us to be as Jesus submitted himself to the tortures of the cross not my will be done but yours my father so how is all of this possible submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee from you come near to God and he'll come near to you Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and repent of your sins. These are acts of humility. Because we have done nothing in it. We have simply, no matter how hard it is, got on our knees with hands open wide. Resist the devil, the desires, the warring. Come near to God and repent of your sins. James then calls us to apply this to the ways we relate to one another. Brothers, in this redeemed state, in this new life... In this good news life, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. Therefore, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you? This is, not a, this is a good question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Come on, who are we to judge a neighbor? Allow Scripture to read us rather than us read Scripture. Allow Scripture to dictate the way that we are to live. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. Live as you have been commanded to live. Resist the devil. Come near to God and repent. When you repent, you're acknowledging, I'm a complete and utter nightmare. I say one thing, but I do another. I desire to do another, and I completely do the opposite. Because there's a battle raging inside of me. If that's Paul the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles saying that, there's a fair chance that there's about 99.99% of people in here who are in a similar place. Stop slandering. Stop judging others. And humility will mean we will lay aside our position as self-appointed judge and leave that up to the only one who is able, and that is God. But when we humble ourselves, when we stop putting ourselves first, when we lay ourselves down to the Lord, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, this will happen. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. That's how it's going to happen. He will lift you up. The lower we go, the more God exalts us. But I think something else will happen in conclusion here. We'll become a church that God blesses. Or if you do that in Elgin, in Linlithgow, in Northumberland, in Carlisle, in Indiana in Brussels, in Cambridge, in in Glasgow, Dorset, Catherine, and Bucky. If you humble yourselves before the Lord, He will lift you up, and your church community will be blessed, one that reflects the beauty and the humility of God Himself. Who doesn't want to be a part of a church like that? (laughs) You know, I want to be a part of a church like that. To become an ugly church, no action is required. It will come naturally. To become a church that God blesses, we need to keep on exalting Jesus. We need to keep on exalting Jesus, not just in our songs, but daily. Luke 9, um, Now, James 4, verse 7 come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Don't just sing about it, do it. Luke 9, 23, another song we sing in family time. If anyone would come, come after me. If anyone would come, come after me, he must deny himself and take his cross up daily and follow, 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 follow me. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 23. We must deny ourselves we must take up our cross daily and follow. Not only should we do that enthusiastically as we sing to encourage our kids to learn this stuff, but obviously we need to do it. Let's lay down our lives for Him. Let's pour out our lives and surface to others. Let's not see each other as objects uh, objects or obstacles, but as people to love and to learn from and to build up, to admire, And let's begin by repenting of our selfishness by asking God to change us. Let's not just pray for our own selfish desires. It will happen, of course, but increasingly may we pray according to God's will and may we be that type of church because I believe that will be a peaceful church. I actually think there'll be more trouble in that church, but it'll come from outside. Just as in our lives, if we are walking in the peace of God I believe the devil will try to tempt us and will roar at us and will accuse us and will send people to accuse. So you will have trouble but we will know shalom as God has promised. I'm going to invite us again for five minutes to remain silent. I may pray a little bit beforehand but we'll have five minutes of silence and I'm giving us that for us to engage with what we've heard one way or another. If you need to repent, repent. And if you need to give thanks, give thanks. Shall we pray together? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So how can we obey that command? Lord, bring us down. Bring us to the place where we need you more and more. Restore to us the joy of salvation. Renew a right spirit within us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul prayed, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we
0: pray. Amen. Amen.